0: Well, do turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter ten. There are some moments in history, some moments in the story of mankind, where events occur that have a significance far greater than the the events themselves as you were to read them would suggest. There is a trajectory put in place, a movement. A transition that occurs that immediately perhaps doesn't have an effect but long term as you look over the course of history the impact of that movement is such as to, to take mankind, humanity or a people or an individual in a direction quite contrary to the direction they were going in up to that moment. That moment when this seismic shift occurs in their lives. Such a moment we're reading about here in this tenth chapter of the book of Acts. Because one of the things that the Bible teaches us is that history, what we call history, is a drama scripted by God himself. Central to the drama is a plot line that runs through the whole of the story, a plot line that centers around, to use Bible language, centers around the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. That redemption has to do not only with restoring people to God, but has to do with the redemption of the cosmos. It has to do with the renewal of all things, the restoration of everything, as Jesus spoke of it, in which not only will individual people be put right and brought into a right relationship with God, and not only will death itself be destroyed and people given resurrection bodies, but this world, this world, this world of trees and rocks and streams, beautiful sunsets and sunrises, this world will be so cleansed, renewed, transformed as to be everything it could possibly be. That, that is the great magical plot line that is being fulfilled in history and that is revealed in the Bible. It's a great story. It's what God is doing in the world. And along that plot line, if you were to to look at it as a graph, graph, along that plot line there are these significant moments when something quite unusual occurs. There, There is an eruption, if you will, into the world of outside powers. There is, to use again Bible language, It's as if the powers of that age to come, the powers that are going to be manifested one day in the future in raising dead people, in in giving them resurrection bodies, the powers of the age to come that one day are going to renew the cosmos, transform everything. Those powers erupt in the present. The powers of the age to come break into this present age. This present age which the Bible says is passing away. This age is passing away. We are passing away. This world, as we know it, with all of its corruption and greed and violence and sin, this world is passing away. And into this world, the powers of the age to come break in in a moment of dramatic action. Now, Acts 10 records one of those amazing eruptions of power from the age to come into the present evil age. For this chapter marks a transition in the story of the human race, and the drama of redemption. It's so important that actually the story is told twice, in chapter 10 and chapter 11. And I I still haven't any idea how I'm going to preach on it again when I get to chapter 11, because you'll have heard it in the next couple of Sunday evenings when we're looking at it. But here in chapter 10, the story is so significant that it is underlined in that way. Now for those of you who are new to the the story, let me just put this particular book of Acts in its place. This book of Acts is still following the fulfillment of that programmatic prophecy that Jesus Christ made before he went to his throne and before he poured out his Spirit. That programmatic prophecy, which is very often understood as a command but in fact it's not a command, but a statement, is that his people, Jesus' people, left in the world, will be his witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Jesus is not laying that on you as a guilt trip. He's not laying that on you as a missionary mandate or a missionary call. He is telling you what is going to happen. Jesus' people will be his witnesses, whether they're consciously His witnesses or not, whether they're consciously witnessing or not. We've kind, of, we've kind of modified witness to what we do and what we say to other people. But His people will witness by their very being His people in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And as the story has unfolded in Acts, we've seen the sovereignty of God bringing this to pass. The sovereignty of God... Has used, God in His sovereign reign has used persecution to make this prophecy come true. So persecution drives Christians from their first home in Jerusalem, drives them out into the countryside, drives them not into Judea but also into Samaria and further afield. God uses persecution to achieve His will. We've seen the providence of God, that is the way in which God leads people, directs them and guides them. We've seen God and Providence bring Philip, one of the disciples, to meet a man from Ethiopia, an African man, and, and in that conversation bring this man from Africa into a living relationship with Jesus Christ and baptize him and send him on his way home rejoicing in the change that has occurred to him. There must have been other Gentiles who came into a relationship with Jesus through the witness of the church as it spills out of Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and to regions beyond. Because we know already that Christians are to be found in Syria, in Damascus, because one of the key figures in the early church was converted in Syria, in Damascus, not in Jerusalem. Now this all prepares us then for this seismic shift. And really this shift begins in the preceding chapter, in the last chapter, two sections of the preceding chapter, where the focus of the story goes back to this character, Peter. Peter is important because Peter is the one that Jesus said was going to be the builder of his church. This, your name is Peter, and he is given a position of leadership within the church. Peter is the man who is the spokesman on the day of Pentecost. Peter has a unique place in leading the church forward as one of Jesus' appointments, appointees. And in the the end of chapter 9, we find this man, Peter, doing these two amazing miracles in which a man who's been paralyzed most of his life is made to walk and lift up his mat or make his own food or whatever the translation is. And a woman who is dead and mourned by her friends is brought back to life in the name of Jesus. And these two miracles are placed here by Uh, Luke because they happened, but they're also placed here in the story as he tells it because he wants us to know that the person that we're going to be listening to, this man who's going to lead this great leap forward, is in fact qualified to do so. His credentials are these, that he can be seen to be equivalent in the kinds of things he does, equivalent to Elijah and Elisha, two of the great prophets of Israel. Not only that, but, but in the things that he does, he is also like the Lord Jesus, who makes paralyzed people walk, and dead people come to life again. Peter does that. He, he is to be equated along with the prophets of the Old Covenant. He is to be equated along with the Messiah of the New Covenant. His power resides in the fact that he acts not in his own name, but in the name of Jesus. Jesus. And he makes people do these great things. Well, now we come, I say, to this, which is the third and final watershed in the book of Acts. The first was Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit was poured out upon the church. The second was the conversion of Paul, which is described in the book of Acts as if it were as significant as the call of Moses, the great leader of Israel and the great giver of the law. Paul is in that category, like Moses. And if you read Paul's letter to the Corinthians, for example, his second letter, you'll see that's how Paul saw himself. Only his job was not to write the law of God, as it were, on stone, as Moses had done, but by his preaching, to write it on the hearts of those who were converted. So you Pentecost, and Paul... And now, this third great watershed, you have Cornelius' conversion and the beginning of the Gentile mission. This is the beginning. If you're a Gentile and not a Jew this evening and you're a Christian, then this is where your story begins. This is where our story begins. So I say, these two miracles then prepare us for this encounter. And the encounter between these two men, Peter and Cornelius. Now we are going to look at this section tonight. They don't meet in this section but this section helps us to get to where we're going. A word or two first of all about the people involved. First of all we start in Caesarea. Uh, I don't know how uh, Andrew said that earlier so I don't know if my pronunciation is the same as yours but mine's right and yours is wrong. Caesarea Caesarea was the capital of the Roman administration in the whole region, the whole region including Judea and Jerusalem. We often think of Jerusalem being the capital. No, Caesarea was the the capital. It was the seat of the governor. So that's the, just like people think that Philadelphia is the capital of Pennsylvania, it's not the other place that we don't mention. That is, the, the seat of the governor was Caesarea. Cornelius was a centurion. That is, he was like a captain, I guess, in the U.S. military. He had a hundred men under him and his men who uh, were part of this particular cohort, the Italian cohort. Very famous group of people. They weren't part of the regular army. They were made up of freedmen. It was a kind of auxiliary force, but it was, had a reputation, a wonderful reputation as a military force. And Cornelius is a Roman citizen. All of this is important because all of this is first. These are firsts. And here's the interesting thing about this man. This man who's a Roman and he's a soldier and a centurion and part of the Roman establishment and administration there in the capital of the region. This man, we're told, and all his family were devout and God-fearing. In other words, what we've been told is that he falls into a category of people that were known in that first century world. They were known as God-fearers. They were people who got fed up with the complexity of the Roman pantheon of gods, all those gods who were operating back and forth in the world. People had seen through that. They were becoming disillusioned with that kind of background. They were looking around for something that seemed to have more meaning, to make more sense. And numbers of people in that first century world were looking at Judaism as something interesting and, and had embraced some of the truths of the Jewish faith. Not all of them, by any manner of means, but some of them. Cornelius belonged to that group. He had responded positively to the idea of a monotheism, one God. He'd responded positively to that idea. He'd responded positively to the idea that that this God could be worshipped without any of the mumbo-jumbo or or magic associated with much of the pagan religion. This God could be worshipped fairly easily. And they'd adopted these God-fearers they'd adopted two elements of Judaism for their own personal lives. One is piety, that is they prayed, they prayed to this God, the God of Israel, and almsgiving, they gave generously to charity, to the poor particularly. So these two elements were the only elements they adopted. They weren't circumcised, they didn't go to sacrifices in the temple, they didn't... uh, Uh, They didn't eat uh, the the kosher food. They weren't into all of that stuff. They selected out of Judaism these two elements that they found helpful to themselves. They prayed and they gave. Two good elements, don't you think, for people to adopt. Now what's interesting? What's interesting for our uh, discussion this evening is this, that in spite of all of this, in spite of his fearing, respecting, honoring, worshipping the God of Israel, And in spite of the fact that he was giving generously to the poor, and in spite of the fact that his piety had influenced his family and they were kind of following along behind him, in spite of all of that, this man was not right with God. He was not right with God. This man still needed the intervention of God in his life if his sins were to be forgiven. And if he was to be sure of salvation, he needed the intervention of God. That's what the story is about, the intervention of God in his life. And what we have in this section we read together, three steps on that process. First of all, we begin with God's initiative. Then we're going to look at God's instrument in the process, and then God's intervention. Look at the, in- the initiative, first of all, God's initiative. So it's about the ninth hour. That's the time of the sacrifices in Jerusalem, And therefore, a good hour of the day in which this man was praying. And at that hour, he tells us, or we are told, that he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come and say to him, Cornelius. Now, the emphasis here is on God taking the first step. He's making the moves here in the salvation of this man. And the whole story is kind of complex. God approaches the man through a vision. So, he's not asleep. His eyes are wide open. He's not nodding off. He's not even like you. Some of you are because you have too much to eat and you're nodding off in church this evening. He wasn't even in that state. He's really quite conscious. You know, the preacher's the definition of a preacher is. You know, some people talk in their sleep. A preacher talks in other people's sleep. That's what they say. Well, that got you awake. Anyway, so his what his. Eyes are wide open. And in that situation, he is given a vision. Remember that. Visions are not given to people who are sleeping. They're given to people who are awake. He sees a vision. And what does he see in his vision? He saw clearly, he tells us, an angel. He saw an angel, a real, live, living angel in his vision. doesn't describe him. No one ever does. Describe what they see when they see an angel. When you see an angel, apparently, you don't have to wonder what you've seen. You've seen an angel. And the angel calls him by name, the angel knows his name, Cornelius. Now angels often appear in the Bible, and Luke records them actually earlier in the first volume of his work that we call luke 's Gospel. He records the ministry of angels, and they often appear in the Bible as agents of God who to further god 's purposes in the world. Very often they appear at significant points in the story to guide people. They appeared to Abraham, for example, at significant points in his life. They appear, for example, to Joshua as he's about to enter into the promised land. They appear to Mary when she's being told that she's pregnant with the Son of God. Angels of God appear at these crucial times in the story. And here's a crucial time. An angel appears to him. And Cornelius reacts the way everybody reacts, apparently, when you see an angel. He's terrified by what he sees. Because apparently when you see an angel like Looking like an angel. Sometimes they don't look like angels, they merely step in to help you, uh, perhaps using someone else or perhaps appearing in a normal kind of context. But when you see an angel as an angel, you are instinctively terrified. Here are beings that are superior to human beings. Is, uh, Is there extraterrestrial life in the universe? The Christian answer is yes, there is. There are angels. And when you see an angel, you are terrified. Because you realize you're in the presence of the supernatural. So he's staring at what he sees. That's what the text says. He can't take his eyes off the angel. And he says to the angel, What is it, Lord? And the angel says to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. God has seen them. God has listened to them. God has received them almost like a sacrifice to him. God has decided that he is going to give to this man the benefits of the Messiah's salvation that has been promised. Here's a man who's seeking understanding. That search for God is not natural, we're told in the Bible. Paul tells us that in Romans. He says it's not natural for people to seek God. It's not natural for people to reach out after God. People need to be drawn by God to seek Him. And here's a man who's being drawn by God to seek God. But he hasn't found Him yet. He is seeking. He's like the people in the Bible. Seek me, you will seek me, and you will find me when you search for me with all your heart. Here's Cornelius and he's seeking for God. I wonder if you're here this evening and you're searching, you're seeking for God. God's brought you here because He started drawing you to Himself He started putting thoughts in your mind, impulses in your heart, circumstances in your life, in order that you might seek him. Well, this man, Cornelius, was seeking God. And God graciously draws him to himself. And so God appears to him and then gives him some advice. He gives him a message. Here's the message. Through the angel, Now send men to Joppa and bring to yourself one Simon, who is called Peter, who is lodging with another Simon, who is a tanner, uh, whose house is by the seaside. Go along to Ocean City, go to the seaside, on the shore you'll find, you'll be able to smell his house a long way away because there are dead animal carcasses and, or, 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 or skins and you'll find him very easily there. You ask anybody in Joppa and they'll tell you where Simon's house is. And they'll tell you not to go there if the wind's in the wrong direction. But find that home and you'll find this other man there, another Simon. You bring him and he will show you the way of life. That's God's initiative. God comes to this man, gives him a message. The angel conveys the message to him to send for Peter. Well, the movement moves, so shifts in the story from God's initiative, revealing himself to Cornelius, to God's instrument. God's instrument is going to be this character, Peter. The men that Cornelius sends off go on their way. It's about 31 miles from where he is to where Peter is. And they go off on their journey. And the next day, as they're on their journey and approaching the city, Peter. Peter goes up onto the housetop about the sixth hour, to pray. Now remember what these housetops look like. If you've seen the Bourne ultimatum, you'll know exactly what they look like. Because when uh, Jason Bourne is, is in Morocco and he's being chased by one of the hitmen, men, he's running over the tops of these houses. And you'll see them. You watch the movie and you'll see this bit. It's the best bit. And he's running along the top of the houses and all the tops of the houses are flat. They're all flat-roofed homes exposed to the, to the sun. And then when you look at Jason Bourne's movie, just forget about the movie for a second, look at the house and say, that's the kind of thing that Peter is on top of in Acts chapter 10. Now, I just added that in. That's not in the Bible, but I'm just bringing some color and life to the story. Uh, And it gets me to be able to mention Jason Bourne just one more time uh, for the culturally savvy among you. So, he's he's on the roof and he's praying and as you do when you're praying, usually you get distracted by something else. David, uh, Peter gets distracted, he gets hungry, and he wants something to eat. While they're preparing it, we're told, he goes into a trance. Now, the, the word that's used a very interesting word. He falls asleep, actually. He falls asleep, and uh, let me read it to you, what it says in verses 9 to, to 13. He fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened, and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And a voice came to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. So while Cornelius' men are on their way to Peter, Peter is praying and God is preparing Peter for their arrival. Because Peter is not going to get from where he is to where God wants him to be without God's intervention in Peter's heart. Something radical is going to have to happen in Peter before these people arrive. And what does he see? He sees something that has reference to creation. You notice the four corners of this, what looks like, he says, and by the way, he didn't actually see a tablecloth. He tells us something like a tablecloth. Whenever prophets are recounting what they see, they think of something that is remotely like what they saw that might connect with you. So don't think of a big tablecloth, but think of something that he saw which he said looked like something like a tablecloth, if you're still with me. Uh, But it had four corners, which... Denote the four corners of the, of the earth. That, that was the, the way people thought then. And, and it was a good way of thinking of the four corners of the earth. North, south, east, west. Thinking of the, the earth like that. So it's to do with the earth. And in this sheet there are animals that cover all of the animals that you will find on the earth. These creatures that God has made. It's an image of creation. And it's quite important that you see this image of creation because this whole book of Acts is about the new creation that God is going to bring to pass. And the new creation, the new creation has already begun to kick in because the powers of the age to come have already invaded because Christ has already come and the Spirit has now arrived and God is creating new people to people this new creation. And so it's in the language, in the the imagery of the new creation that God communicates to Peter this amazing truth. And what does he see? Well, I say that he's into a trance. Let me just pick up this word trance for a moment because this very same idea is used of several other people in the Bible. It's used of Adam in the garden. Adam, you remember, went was put into a trance, he was put into a sound, deep sleep. And while he was asleep, God did something creative. And when he woke up, he turned round and said, Madam, I'm Adam. And introduced himself to this new creature that God had made while he was in his trance. In other words... Again, you see, the image is the image of creation. We're being taken back to creation. And the very way in which this this communication, this revelation from God is given to Peter is in this creational context. The same happens to Abraham later on in, in the Genesis story when Abraham is put into a deep Sleep into a trance by God. And while he's there, he sees that God is the one who makes the covenant arrangement. God is the one who takes the initiative of salvation. God's the one who walks between the animals of the sacrifice. God does all the work. When God makes a promise, he doesn't make it a conditional promise to his people of salvation. He does it all for us. Abraham sees that. That's the beginning of the story of God's elect People in the Bible. So at the beginning of creation, the beginning of God's election of a people out of the world, and now at this new turning point in the story, God puts a person into a deep trance. And is going to do something dramatic as a result of it. What does he hear? He hears a command, Get up. It's the same command that he's just used. When he said to the paralyzed man, get up. When he said to the dead woman, get up. Now God says to him, Peter, get up. Sacrifice and eat. But here was Peter's problem. As he looked into this big tablecloth, as he looked at these animals, he noticed That they were all there, all the animals. The ones that he knew to be clean and the ones he knew to be unclean. The ones that had been specified, you can eat them. And the ones that had been specified, you can't eat them. There were the lambs that you could have lamb chops with. Or make stew with or whatever you did with lambs. And there were were the the mussels and and the, the seafood that you weren't allowed to touch. And they were all there. And so he has a problem. Is this, is, this, is this dream, this revelation from God or not? If it's from God, then God's got it wrong. And so he responds. He responds the way Peter always responds, actually. And, and if, if there was ever a master of inappropriate responses to God, Peter is the master of inappropriate responses to God. So that, for example, when Jesus once on one occasion tells him to go out and fish, Peter's response is to say to Jesus, look, you don't know anything about fish. I know you must, you made them, but you don't know anything about fish. You leave fishing to fishermen. Yeah. Being a creator is one thing, being a fisherman is another. I know more than you when it comes to fish. On another occasion when uh, Jesus had said that he was praying for Peter because Peter was going to be sifted, Peter argues with Jesus and says, you don't have to pray for me. If you pray for me, I'll be fine. I'm absolutely fine. You don't have to pray for me, i would follow you even to death if necessary. Another occasion when he confesses that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. He goes on to correct Jesus and say, But when I call you the Messiah, Son of God, understand this. I'm not talking about a Messiah that has to suffer and die. That's not the kind of Messiah I believe in. But I believe you're the Messiah, therefore you can't be that kind of Messiah. No way are you going to the cross and no way are you going to die. Or on that spectacular occasion, when Jesus washes his disciples' feet, and when he comes along to Simon Peter, Simon Peter says to him, no, Lord, no, Lord, you will never wash my feet. You see, the the, the message had never quite got through into the mind of Simon Peter, that you do not say no and Lord in the same breath. Either Jesus is Lord of all, or he's not Lord at all. Either he's Lord, or he's not Lord. You can't say Lord, and no, you just don't get the the option. That is not on the cards. That isn't a possibility, if you know Jesus. So here he is, and he's saying this. Peter said to him, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. He uses a double negative. No, no, Lord. Absolute refusal. I'm a faithful Jew. Don't you know I'm a faithful Jew and I've never eaten any of this unclean stuff? I've never broken that law. I may have broken other laws, but I haven't broken that law. I've been faithful in that. And he's arguing with God. He wasn't the first prophet to do that. Back in the Old Testament, interesting, in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, there are two prophets. Peter is the one in the New. Ezekiel is the one in the Old. And both of them have an argument with God about the very same subject. Ezekiel in the Old Covenant, he protested when God said to him that he should eat ceremonially unclean food. He protested, having never eaten ceremonially unclean food ever. And I'm not going to start now. That's Ezekiel. And God says, well, you are going to start now because you're a prophet. Prophets do as they're told. Eat. And here is Peter. Now, now both of these people are being told to eat unclean food for for different reasons. Ezekiel is told to eat unclean food because he is going to be a visual aid to the, for the children of Israel that they're under the judgment of God and they're going to have to be taken away from Palestine and they're going to go to a foreign country and they're going to have to eat what they're given. Billy, cheese, steaks and all these things that are good for your health, apparently. Um, so I'm told, but I don't believe them. So that's, that's Ezekiel. And then there's Peter. And Peter's being told that he has to eat this unclean stuff for another reason. Now, interestingly, Peter, let me just kind of put it like this, politely. Peter is the the man whose message and preaching lies behind the gospel of Mark. And in the gospel of Mark, there are comments about Jesus on one occasion saying this, that it is not what goes into our mouths that defiles us, but what comes out of our mouths that defiles us. And Mark, in his comment in the Gospel, writes this, that when Jesus said that, he declared all foods clean. Now that's Peter fast-forwarded into the future. At this stage in Peter's life, Peter didn't realize that. He knew the story, but he didn't see the point. And similarly, he has the vision. He doesn't see the point. And so we're told that God came to him. The voice came to him a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. Three times, sheep down. Three times, the animals. Three times, told to get up and eat. Three times, he says, I don't eat. That kind of stuff, Lord. Three times, God says to him, what God has made clean, do not call unclean. Three times, It's to underline the story. And it's underlined like that, not only because of Peter's stubbornness, which is the human factor, but because it's heralding this new era, this future that is dawning, this new creation, outburst, at this point in history. And it's all about being clean, cleansed. We we Christians have a word for that. Sanctified or, or... Holy. And uh, when Jesus prays for his followers in John 17, he prays for them in, this, in these terms. Sanctify them, clean them, clean them up by your truth. Your word is truth. And one of the things that is taught by this statement that, G- that God uses to Peter here is that before the cleaning project becomes an inward thing, before the cleaning up project becomes an act of, or a process of inward renewal, it is first of all a pronouncement. It is a definitive claim by the triune God. It is a declarative word. It is a declarative word, just like justification when a person is pronounced not guilty. God is saying here, in a declarative way, what I call clean is clean. My word is enough. I don't have to clean it up. I just have to say, it is clean, and it is clean. And that's all God has to say to a person. You are clean. You are clean. Jesus says this in John's Gospel again when he's speaking to his disciples and he's distinguishing uh, 10 of the, or 11 of the 12, separating them from Judas Iscariot, he says to them, You are clean by the word that I have spoken to you. You are clean. Not every one of you. Simon, uh, Peter, uh Judas, that guy. Judas was not clean by the word of Christ. The rest, clean by his word. A declarative word. This is where that message comes. Hosea, Hosea understood this. Hosea, when he's looking forward into the future, and Peter will pick up on this quotation by Hosea. Hosea, looking forward into the future, looks forward to a day when the people who are the outcasts, the people who are unclean spiritually, those people, those people who are named by Hosea, not my people, they're given a Hebrew name that means not my people. It's not the catchiest name, it's not going to catch on, nobody's going to christen their child, not my people, any any time soon. But that was the name that Hosea uses, not my people. There's coming a day, says Hosea, when those who are unclean, those who are called not my people, are going to be called the people of God. The people of God. Because God will declare it, God will do it, He will proclaim that. And so when we come to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we read about Jesus that he became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, cleansing, cleaning up, and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So Peter learns, he's taught, that God's cleansing, cleaning, is his declarative word. He says it, and it's true. And Peter's reluctance, well, he's just like Jonah, another prophet. In fact, on one occasion, in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus calls Peter, son of Jonah. Because he's going to be like Jonah. Here he is in this story, being like Jonah. God said to Jonah, go. Jonah went the other way. God said to Jonah, preach to the people of Nineveh. Jonah said, no way, Yahweh. No way. And that's what Peter is saying to God here. No, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. And in this moment, God is confronting this man and he's showing him by the sheer repetition of the dream, the threefold repetition of the dream. You need to see, threefold repetitions don't come up very often in the Bible and when they do, you take notice of them. Like you do in Isaiah chapter 6 when it says, Holy, holy, holy. Three times God says, what God made clean, what God made clean, what God made clean. Holy, holy, holy. Well, Peter's threefold vision offers a new perspective on the way in which Scripture is to be interpreted and the Gospel is to be preached. That the provisions in the Mosaic law for cleansing are now fulfilled in Jesus Christ. The, culture, the cultic distinctions and cultural decision, distinctions that excluded the Gentiles are no longer applicable. That the kosher food laws which separated Jews from Gentiles socially and religiously have now been put to one side. Sharing a meal with people is to share fellowship with them. It's to establish a bond with them. To shun a meal is to shun friendship. It's to repudiate a stranger. It's a good exercise for all of us to ask who is it we will not eat with? Well, there's God's initiative and there's God's instrument now being prepared. And then there's God's intervention. That's how we end tonight in verses 17 to 20. While Peter is still on his roof, Jason Bourne isn't up there running around. He's just on his own. Up there in prayer. He's been in his trance. He's had this dream. He's now pondering. He's dwelling in it. He's he's mulling over what he's seen. What he doesn't know is that the men have now arrived. Three men Three visions, or dreams, three men are at the door. He doesn't know this yet, but God speaks to him again by the Holy Spirit. The things are all connected. Peter's perplexed. He's given three dreams. There are three men at the door. The Spirit speaks to him, and he says to him, there are three men at the door. (laughs) Let them in because they've come with a message. And the Spirit says, I have sent them. Don't hesitate to go down. That word hesitate is only used four times in the book of Acts. All of those uses are to do with the welcome of Cornelius and his fellow Gentiles. Don't discriminate. Don't hesitate. Don't discern. If you have questions in your mind, that's okay. If there are issues that may not be clear to you, that's okay. If you have objections, that's okay. But don't hesitate to welcome the people at the door. So there's the arrival of the visitors at the right moment. There's the word of the Spirit at the right moment. And as Peter goes downstairs and meets these men, he has their explanation. There's the third thing. Three things. Three witnesses, browned together. They tell him about Cornelius. They tell him about the vision of the angels. They tell him about the message and the fact that they were sent to this very house in this very city to ask for this very man by name. Is Peter getting the point here? Is Peter getting the message here? Is he beginning to understand that God is in this? This is a God thing? This is a God event? It's only the beginning of the scenario. It's only the beginning of the story. We're not, we're not getting anywhere tonight except the introduction. It's as well, it's not the whole chapter. But that day, that day, when Peter, at the end of that questioning, invites invites those men into his house. The world has begun to change. In chapter 11, verse 13, we're given a fuller account. Let me read you that fuller account for a moment. The fuller account of what these men said to Peter. He told us, how he, that is, Cornelius told us, how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa, and bring Simon, who is called Peter, he will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. That's why Peter is being called. Because he has the message. The emphasis is on the word. It's on the message. It's on the gospel. That this gospel, anticipated by the prophets has now been confirmed by the arrival of the last day's spirit and is now being manifested by the abolition of this clean-unclean distinction. And This revelation of the promise's fulfillment, which would stagger and scandalize Peter, is going to result in the mission to the Gentiles that in Christ, even the unclean are holy. Even the unclean are holy in Christ that those who are strangers to the covenants and the promises can become children of Abraham and that their children, the children of Abraham by faith, their children become holy, clean to God. It is a revolutionary moment. Jews had always forgotten that uh, that last day's element to their practices. They'd forgotten that those dietary laws were only ever provisional, temporary, until the reality came. Now we're learning from this history that the reality has arrived. God is going to build His church by tearing down the wall of division, by adding Gentiles, Samaritans, God-fearers into the mix with Jews. The vision to Cornelius, the dream to Peter, are all about people, people, people. God is repealing these dietary laws to show us that the unclean are being gathered in and made clean by Christ. Because, you see, we all start unclean. And we all need the cleaning up that Jesus gives. So, that irrespective of our cultural background, if we have confessed Christ, if we put our hope and our trust in Him alone for salvation, then He is in us, we are in Him. And God declares all believers Clean. And what God has called clean, let no one call unclean. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for good news, the good news of the gospel. For this great moment in the history of the church. Equal, the creation of woman from Adam's side, the promise to Abraham that started the whole process of the work of redemption in that would lead to to Jesus in the story of humanity. This great movement to include Gentiles as well as the physical seed of Abraham in the promise of God is the fulfillment of that promise made to Abraham that uh, God was going to bless all the nations of the world through him. Thank you that we here tonight are testament to that. Gentiles, most of us, who know the Lord Jesus, That one Jew who brings salvation to the world, we pray that you would give us a heart for him. That he might have all our affection, all of our adoration, all of our love. That the Lord Jesus might be to us more precious than life itself. Might be to us the fairest of ten thousand. The lily of the valley, the bright morning star, the rising sun the Lord Jesus might be to us our everything. We pray that in His great name. Amen.